Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rodner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, December 19th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz in the New York Times. Good morning. Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Hello. And Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Happy to be here. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So before we start, a note about our schedule. This is our last podcast of 2019. Thank you to all our listeners. We will take next week off, and we'll be back January 2nd, but with a special that I taped last week about how other countries run their health systems. It was a great conversation. I'm sure you will like it. But that means our next look at the news will be January 9th. So I am glad to say that here for our last podcast of 2019, we finally have a decision in that uh, appeals court case about the Affordable Care Act. It came down last night uh, from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. A majority of the three-judge panel agreed with the lower court judge in Texas that with the tax penalty for not having coverage lowered to zero, the law's individual mandate provision is now unconstitutional. But rather than deciding itself what that means for the rest of the law, the appeals court is sending the case back to the lower court to decide which parts of the law can stay and which have to go. So where does this leave us, Margot? (laughs) I think it leaves us without very much certainty about what the real effect of this ruling is. There are certainly hints in the opinion that these judges felt like it would be hard to agree with the ruling of the Texas judge. They said in particular, that his analysis had really failed to take account of what Congress did in 2017, that his whole analysis was focused on what Congress had intended in 2010 when they first passed the Affordable Care Act. And of course, the kind of critical thing that set off this case was the passage of the tax reform bill, which removed the individual mandate penalties. So I I do think that they have signaled that it may be hard for the ruling to stay the way it is. The original ruling that said the entire law has to be struck down. Yeah, exactly. But I think really we don't know. And it was like the dissent, the judge who dissented, so it was a two to one decision, uh, really pointed out that it's actually like a little bit weird that these judges didn't rule on this issue. So in general, the way things work in the legal system is that the trial court, the district court judges, they have hearings or trials. They consider evidentiary matters, factual matters that bear on the case. And then the appellate courts consider legal questions. And this question about what's called severability, about what When there's one part of a law that's problematic, what do you do with the rest of it? That is really a legal question. That is not a factual or evidentiary question. And no matter what the judge in Texas did or what the judge in Texas does if he gets this case again, the appeals court normally would start from scratch and do the analysis all over again. And so what the dissenting judge said is, this is kind of weird that these judges have punted on this issue and asked the district court to do more work because they're still going to have to undertake the same analysis from scratch when it comes back. But I think the most important takeaway from what happened in this case is that we are not going to get a final decision or even anything that looks like a final decision for a long time. And I think the consequences of that are probably more important for 
uh, political things Which than is they my are next for question. practical ones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, well, though, you know, Attorney General Becerra in California, who's been leading the Democratic attorneys general who are defending the law because the administration is not, said last night after the decision came down that he was going to go straight to the Supreme Court, which felt odd because the case isn't done yet. But uh, apparently he can do that. Um, but I get is I assume that that's a for political reasons that he wants to he wants this to be in litigation in higher litigation during the uh, the presidential campaign in 2020. And you have to wonder, did the appeals court do this to try and keep it out of the 2020 campaign? Alice, it's possible. It's possible. So, I mean, the Supreme Court doesn't have to do anything, um, but they could. Um, but it would be very unlikely considering there all, is all of this active work going on at the lower courts that hasn't been resolved yet and won't be resolved now for who knows how long. I mean, it took us a year to get this decision, so we could be waiting another year for the district court to yeah, I think it might have way been, back in. I think it was a year. The, the appeals exactly. court came a year to the day after the lower court ruling. Mm-hmm. And so now, so now politically... For Republicans, they might feel like pressure's off a little bit. Um, There was a lot in 2018 about um, Republicans being, you know, responsible for threatening the Affordable Care Act and voters really responding to that and giving the House to Democrats. This year, it was a little more muddled. Um, There were, you know, saying that this case was active and um, both uh, state Republican attorneys general and the Trump administration were bringing this suit making this threat. Now it's a little unclear. It might not happen before the election. Nothing might happen before the election. But I think um, it still gives Democrats an opening to say the threat to the Affordable Care Act is real. This arguably increases it because it's agreeing with some of the uh, rulings of the lower court saying the mandate is unconstitutional and it's sending the entire case, the fate of the law, back down to the very judge who said the entire thing's got to go. So um, arguably it's putting the Affordable Care Act in greater peril, which could be salient politically. So Kimberly, I mean, this clearly gives Democrats a talking point, which is the law is still uh, in in some jeopardy, what does it mean for Republicans? They they're yeah. t- I mean Republicans on Capitol Hill are terrified of this case. They are, and what they're happy to do though is turn the focus back onto mm-hmm. Medicare for all. If you noticed, a lot of the statements that came in from Republicans last night were focused on. Well, okay, but look, Democrats want to, you know, overhaul the health care system and take away health care too, basically, is, is kind of how it's going to be seen. So both sides have a hard task ahead. Democrats tonight during the debate will have an opportunity to show that they can kind of unite behind defending the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, they haven't done that yet. No, up till now, they've really been focused on infighting over, you know, is a public option the best move forward? Is Medicare for all the best move forward? So, you know, both sides have a different difficult task because each side is going to say, well, they're trying to take your health care away. And Republicans, again, are happy to run on this. Democrats will need to show they're a little bit more united on it. Uh, So far, those in Congress have been pretty good at doing that, on focusing on the ACA. But frankly, when it comes to politics, it's all about, you know, immediacy. And so if you look at this case, it really does kind of push it off and into kind of this unknown space and takes the pressure off at a time when the Trump administration still hasn't released a backup plan and when Republicans have failed to unite behind any kind of a replacement either. 
And luckily for Republicans, Democrats have also failed to <laughs> unite. Alice, you were going to say something. Oh, and um, as, as my colleagues reported, uh, Seema Verma did come up with a replacement plan, but it got shelved because it was too expensive and arguably propped up um, many core provisions of the Affordable Care Act itself. And so, um, yes, no one, uh, no candidate, no lawmaker, no administration has released a plan that we've been able to see. And the, yeah. the threat is still real, even if it's a little farther off. So I have a piece out this morning in which I argue that this is like almost the dream scenario for Republicans. I mean, obviously, they are faced with this case, which I think presents them with some pretty uh, difficult options. I mean, the most obvious things that could have happened uh, yesterday are they could have lost the case. And I think that would have been a little bit embarrassing for them. And it would have been, I think, a really ringing they, affirmation. The, 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 uh, the Trump administration and the state attorneys generals that challenged the Affordable Care Act. Oh, if the court had said the Affordable Care Act is totally constitutional, it's great, or it's, you know, untouched, uh, that would have been a kind of loss for them. If, on the other hand, the court had agreed with the arguments that were brought by the litigants and the lower court judge and said the entire Affordable Care Act needs to get uh, erased from history, um, that would have set off, you know, a huge cascade of consequences. And yes, the Supreme Court would have to weigh in. It's not like people would be losing their insurance coverage tomorrow. But I do think that, you know, as Kimberly and Alice have said, Republicans are not very well prepared for a scenario in which the Affordable Care Act doesn't exist before. It's not like they have some plan that they're ready to come out and reassure people that they've got something better on offer. And we saw in 2017 that when the prospect of the Affordable Care Act being repealed started to get real and people started thinking about, well, like, what does it mean for these provisions to go away? There was a huge political backlash. So that kind of scenario would have been pretty bad for Republicans, too. I think what the judges did by sort of postponing the the decision about the real kind of messy consequences, the policy effect, but still giving them a little bit of a win on the constitutionality question, that this really, I think, kind of preserves the status quo, which is, you know, as Kimberly said, the big national health care debate that we're having right now is one about Democrats wanting to expand health care coverage through new government programs. And I think that is an argument that a lot of Democrats think could be persuasive, uh, could win them votes. They're obviously choosing to talk about that and not about the Affordable Care Act because they think it will they think it's what's right for the country and also they think it's what's right for them politically. Well also they agree on the Affordable Care Act. So but, there's yeah. when you're trying to differentiate yourself from other Democrats, that's not a very helpful talking point. But we can certainly see in the in the public opinion polling that you know, if you're the protector of pre-existing conditions, that's like everybody loves that. Mm -hmm. If you're advocating for a big new system that provides new consumer protections and changes the way things work and maybe causes some people to lose coverage that they have now, that is a much more mixed bag in terms of public opinion. And I think you could imagine a decision for the litigants in this case actually setting off a whole new news cycle that's very much like the 2017-2018 news cycle in which Democrats get to be the ones that are protecting the most popular parts of the Affordable Care Act, whereas Republicans are kind of scrambling to assemble a plan and agree on one that they don't really have ready to go. We don't have that scenario now. And so I think we have a little bit of the political status quo, which is a debate in which Republicans are sort of by default the defenders of the status quo. And it's the Democrats who are having to explain and defend their plans to change the way things are now.
we will see, I'm sure, how this will continue to play out, even though it's not as sort of front and center as we thought it might be. Also, it came down as the House was voting on impeachment, which probably was, I, I'm not sure who that helps. But All right, well, let's talk about something that's happening here in Washington. Um, we've been talking about this court case, obviously, for months now. We have also talked quite a bit about the annual spending bill for the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, dating back to last summer when the House first started working on it. And we've talked about the possibility of a big year-end health bill. And we are in the process of getting both. I believe the Senate is voting as we speak. There's a big health policy bill grafted onto the HHS spending bill, both of which are included in a gigantic measure that will fund the rest of the government for the fiscal year that began, cough, cough, uh, October 1st. Um, this Hey, they're getting it done before Christmas. Better late than never. Right. <laughs> the spending bill includes some big increases for programs like the National Institutes of Health and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But there are also a lot of health policy changes in this package, and I want to go through them one by one. So let's start with the bunch of health taxes that are going away, including one that never took effect. Uh, they are taxes on medical device makers, on health insurers, and the so-called Cadillac tax that was supposed to deter the overuse of medical care by taxing the most generous employer health plans, although it's never actually collected a penny. These taxes were among the big funders of the Affordable Care Act itself, and now, less than 10 years later, they are going bye-bye. What changed? It's just amazing that uh, lawmakers and the administration just bent over backwards to try to make the Affordable Care Act uh, fiscally responsible, and all of the mechanisms that made it so are are essentially dead. Well, not all of them. Not Actually, all of interestingly, them. Many of them. The, the biggest ones, I just wrote a story about this mm -hmm. last month, and so I went back and looked at the numbers. The ones that raise the most money are actually the, the increases in taxes on the rich. Mm -hmm. And those are, those are... And also the Medicare cuts are right. substantial. There's, there's a Medicare tax, there's a payroll tax. There, there were, uh, for, for wealthy people, there, there were a bunch of taxes aimed at really wealthy people, and those are collecting money. So those, to the extent and, the ACA is being paid for, that's what's paying Absolutely. For and I think it really is a testament to um, the ongoing power of the um, healthcare industry um, that has long fought to delay and now completely get rid of some of these major taxes. And so, um, you know, just tucked into this bill in order for lawmakers to be able to go home for the holidays and not see a government shutdown, we are now seeing these pretty major pieces of the Affordable Care Act that have been around um, being stripped away. I'm I'm surprised that they're doing this now. I mean, the Senate's going to be voting on the spending bill today. They're going to be essentially voting to repeal parts of the Affordable Care Act just after we got this ruling from the Fifth Circuit. Um, you know, it's a strange look. I'm surprised they're doing it this way rather than suspending them again, just as they've done so many years in a row. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, here we are. And now, uh, you know, Trump can say again, i succeeded at repealing more of Obamacare. It was, they were, in fairness, they're the unpopular parts of Obamacare. They're the taxes that pay for it. <laughs> taxes are unpopular. That's yeah, right. but, but yeah, it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be paid for. That's something I hear all the time from Affordable Care Act defenders. At least the ACA was paid for. And it's just notable that this is what Congress was able to accomplish and not some of the other things. Which we will get to. They've been debating for the whole year, which would um, be a tax of some sort, uh, you know, a reduction in profits on, on yes. some of these industry groups. Yes, I think, I think you're right. Sort of my, my takeaway from this is the continuing power of the health insurance or the, not just the health insurance, the health care industry. Yeah, insurance providers. Yeah. Medical, Medical device devices. Makers. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So and I, and I think actually the big losers here are the, the Washington, D.C. TV stations 
publications and, and publications who've had all of these ads for all of these years about how terrible these taxes are, and now they'll <laughs> be able to pull them. I, heard, I, I still heard the um, Stop the Health Insurance Tax Add on uh, Morning Edition I yesterday. Heard that. I heard I thought, it I thought, like, maybe you could just take a victory lap now. <laughs> no, like, it's going away, really. <laughs> Thank right. your Congress member. You know? <laughs> all right. Well, also impacting the Affordable Care Act is language that is intended to prevent the Trump administration from outlawing something called silver loading. This was the workaround that states and insurance companies devised in 2017 after President Trump unilaterally canceled federal uh, funding for subsidies that the law requires insurers to give to low-income enrollees in the ACA marketplaces. Uh, Margo, you've written about this quite a lot. Why is it important that they're sort of preserving silver loading, which they actually wrote the phrase into the law? I know. So uh, whoever we I, there was a long discussion on Twitter about who was the coiner of that phrase, but whoever it is now gets credit for being part of a federal law. Uh, the Silver, you know, the Trump administration's and President Trump's decision to suspend these subsidies, I think, was intended as like a little piece of sabotage to try to undermine the stability of the oh, Affordable Care Act markets. But it actually had this sort of perverse consequence where uh, because of the ways that insurance companies and state regulators responded, what it ended up doing actually was making the subsidies for low and middle income people who buy their own insurance more generous so that they more people are able to buy plans for free or buy generous plans that have lower deductibles for less. And that was certainly not the intention of the uh, people who implemented this policy. And it was not the intention of the framers of the Affordable Care Act, who, again, were trying to be fiscally prudent, trying to set up the subsidies in a way that the government could afford over the long term. But now that this has happened, I think there is a lot of concern by Democrats that if the ratchet was turned back the other way and the states were no longer allowed to uh, encourage insurers to price their products in this way that it would make insurance much less affordable for these low and middle income people uh, who buy their own coverage and also for people who are paying full freight. So uh, this is just kind of a way of hanging on to this new weird status quo that we have, so, although I believe it is only temporary. I read it, but I didn't see I I thought, oh, I don't know. We'll have to go back and check. Alice, you were going to. Oh, yeah. So Democrats have just been talking about so many different anti-sabotage, quote-unquote, um, measures that they have been wanting to pass in order to either undo things the Trump administration has already done that they feel are uh, hurting the Affordable Care Act, hurting enrollment, um, you know, cuts to the outreach funding that they wanted restored, um, all kinds of things, the length of open enrollment. Um, and, and a major one has been uh, the availability of these short-term limited-duration plans. Um, they because they had to come together with Republicans on these spending bills, they couldn't get any of those things. And so what what they have been claiming as a victory is the silver loading and uh, preserving auto enrollment is the other one. And so they can say, look, we're preventing future sabotage because the Trump administration might have done these things. Um, and actually in the past has signaled that they were at least looking into it. And so this is um, yes, uh, not not quite the the sweeping um, anti sabotage uh, platform they they came into office with uh, last year, but it it is something they can point to. You get this what is, you can it's, get. It's also like the Democrats had introduced and debated and marked up and in some cases passed a bunch of bills mm -hmm. in this in this general domain of trying to undo Trump administration policies that they saw as undermining the stability of the ACA marketplaces. But one of the weird things about these two measures that ended up at the spending bill is that none of them had ever appeared before. These were not pieces of legislation that had been introduced, discussed, or passed. These were things that I think the Speaker's office just kind of shoved into the package at the last minute. 
I got a, I got sort of a weird email a week or two ago from uh, Senator Schumer's office that said, uh, we're putting the Cadillac tax on the table. I'm like, oh, OK. <laughs> All right. The now, Cadillac tax at yeah. least did pass the House. Yes, I mean, that was true. something that was, yeah. there was ongoing legislation about. But this silver loading and yeah. auto enrollment was just like brand new. All right. Well, more from the spending bill. Um, and this is in the actual spending bill part of the spending bill. There is $25 million for research on gun violence at both the CDC and the NIH. I was actually there when Congress cut off this funding in the mid-1990s at the behest of the gun industry, who was worried that, you know, studies that suggested that guns might actually be dangerous um, were bad for the gun owners. Uh, the money that Congress has uh, appropriated is only half of what the House passed last summer, and it's a pittance compared to most other health research funding. But this is still a really big deal that Congress has agreed to put this money back, right? Everybody's yeah, we've, we've talked about this before, but, you know, gun research historically has been, or gun violence prevention research has been an area that has really been underfunded both by the government and by other sources relative to other public health problems of this magnitude. A lot of Americans die uh, through guns, different ways, suicide, homicide, accidental deaths, the big, big leading cause of death in the United States. And we just don't invest the same amount in studying the causes of it and how to prevent them as we do similarly deadly things in health. Uh, like car crashes. Car crashes are a really good analogy because they're quite similar in magnitude. Uh, in car crashes, we actually spend a ton of money. We have a whole government agency that studies uh, the factors that lead to car crashes and helps investigate them and improve the safety of roads, driving rules, and cars themselves. Um, so I, I, we've talked about this before. I don't want to talk too much. and I've written about this, but there's been an interesting renaissance in the last few years of private funding for gun violence research. I think philanthropists and state governments and a couple of health systems have actually put a lot of money forward, feeling like this is an important public health priority and we need to have more research. And that has actually brought more young scholars into the field. And there has been more publications uh, in this area in the last few years than there has been for decades. So this is already kind of a burgeoning field of research. But everyone says that there are certain things that the government is best positioned to do, to not just fund research grants by outside researchers, but to collect data, the kinds of things that we do to improve road safety. The government is just best positioned to do that. So I'm very curious to see what the CDC ends up doing with this new money. The NIH presumably will fund research grants, but the CDC has um, more options before it. And if it starts collecting more detailed data, that could be quite useful both to the government, but also to these other researchers to be able to build their research off of new information that tells us more about what's really happening with guns in this country. And medical provider groups that have been really pushing for this research, uh, this after after the news came out that this funding was going to be included, they expressed anxiety that um, because this public funding was going to be available for the first time in decades, that private funding would drop off in response to it. They would say, oh, well, the government can handle this now. And they were really urging all um, of the private foundations and philanthropists and um, universities and everybody that's been funding this work to stay in the game. This needs to be an addition, not a replacement funding. Um, I'm also very curious about what kind of projects the research money could make possible. Um, lawmakers just over and over this year have said, look, we're debating these gun safety policies and we don't have the science to know whether setting up gun-free zones even works. Uh, we need the research to be able to craft policy in a smarter way. And so um, we'll see what this leads to. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Well, the the big issue this year that Congress was going to work on on a bipartisan basis was prescription drug prices. And we have not a whole lot to show, but there's one. A big house bill. Yeah. Yeah. Big house bill to pass. <laughs> That's one, not going anywhere. <laughs> one very small piece in this spending bill package. Um, the it's called the Creates Act, uh, and it was maybe the lowest of low-hanging fruit that could that could have gotten passed. Somebody, somebody, explain what Creates actually does, Alice. Well, it is aimed to encourage uh, competition by um, allowing uh, generic drug makers to more easily get samples of branded drugs in order to study and make their own version of them. Um, this has been debated for so long that some folks say that the the bad behavior that it's meant to address is not happening as much as it used to anyways. And so it really is a low-hanging fruit. Um, it might help, but it's not like we're all going to see, you know, cheaper drugs next time we go pick it's, up it's, our drugs. It's literally stopping one thing, which is that yes. it's hard to, to make a generic copy of a drug if you can't actually get the the drug to copy. Which, sure, and, and you know, this had bipartisan support, and, you know, it's been debated for years. And, and yet it still hasn't passed until now. Exactly. So the, the prospects of doing something um, a lot more ambitious, um, which is what uh, people in both parties say is needed to bring down the cost of drugs, um, is looking a little more remote. Well, one more thing that is happening before we get to the things that didn't make it into this bill, um, and boy, this list is getting long, also in the spending bill is a measure intended to address the teen vaping problem by raising the minimum age to buy tobacco products to 21. But this is not the bill that most of the health advocates wanted, right? They wanted a flavor ban. They wanted, uh, you know, they we know from research that teens are uh, vaping different flavors. They taste like candy. They taste like fruit. Um, there was a survey that came out just this week showing, in fact, that, um, you know, that's not only very popular with teens, but vaping marijuana has become more popular with teens. And that's happening as we have this lung illness outbreak also going on. So the 21 and over bill was the only agreement they could come to. There are still a lot of other measures that have been introduced in terms of more firmly regulating these products, imposing taxes, imposing fees, marketing campaigns, and things like that. But uh, this had pretty widespread agreement, and a lot of states have already raised the age to buy tobacco, to, which includes e-cigarettes, to 21. 21 anyway. But this is, I will say in favor of this policy, this is a very evidence-based policy because we have states that have a 21-year mm-hmm. rule already. There has been really good research that's uh, been done looking at like border communities, you know, comparing states, but also doing more granular look at sort of comparable places across state lines. And what the research shows is that raising the tobacco purchasing age to 21 doesn't just reduce smoking among people between 18 and 21, which is like what you would obviously expect, but it actually reduces teen smoking too, because most teenagers who smoke, they're not buying their own cigarettes, they're getting them from their friends. Mm -hmm. And by raising the age, it just means that it's a much less likelihood that young people are going to have friends who are smokers who can give them cigarettes. And so this is a policy. It it basically means that nobody in high school can legally buy tobacco Yeah, I think it really could have a positive public health impact. You know, we should have a longer conversation about vaping. There are plenty of things to be concerned about there. But certainly cigarettes we know to be a very serious public health problem. And we know that young people who start smoking are more likely to smoke throughout their lives. And so I think these kinds of policies that prevent young people from smoking do have a lot of payoff. Well, of all there were so there were lots of things in that bill. It was very handy. All these things we've talked about all year on our last podcast of the year have some 
sort of resolution uh, in this bill, but there were obviously some pretty significant things that got left out. Alice, we talked several times this year about some changes in the reproductive uh, health policies that Democrats wanted to change in the HHS spending bill, including the Hyde Amendment that bans uh, most abortion funding, and later on the language to block the controversial Title X family planning rules that have prompted Planned Parenthood to leave the program. Neither of those made it into this package. And that was not a surprise to anyone. Um, I mean, the House didn't, even though the House had the votes to vote to get rid of the Hyde Amendment, um, in order, which would allow um, public funding for abortions, um, they, they didn't take that vote. It was sort of a, a bridge too far. They didn't want to put um, their members in that position. Um, to their take, moderate Democratic exactly, members in that exactly, position. Exactly, leading into elections next year. And as for the Title X, uh, undoing the Trump administration's Title X rule, the House did vote on that. Um, the Senate Democrats were making a big fuss about it. That's what led to uh, the markup of the spending bill being completely canceled and bypassed. In the Senate. In the Senate. But, I mean, we knew this was going to happen all along. Um, this, the Senate Republicans would never agree to un- undo the Trump administration's Title X rules, stripping funding from Planned Parenthood. They love stripping funding from Planned Parenthood. <laughs> they can't talk about it enough. So um, the, the writing was on the wall with this one. Um, and I think that it just puts more pressure on uh, the pending court cases. Now we have, now that we all have the Texas court case, now we can all pay attention to the Title X case at the Ninth Circuit. Oh, great. I can't (laughs) wait. Um, Also on the list of things that didn't make it in, a fix for surprise medical bills. Uh, Margot, you have been writing about this uh, quite a bit. What is the takeaway for a problem whose fix had the backing of Democrats, Republicans, and President Trump and still couldn't get done? I think this comes back a little bit to our discussion about the repeal of the taxes in the spending bill. I just think it really shows how hard it is to implement policies that inflict any pain at all on these really powerful health industries. So, you know, one thing I think is important to note about the particular solution to surprise medical billing that was in the legislative proposal is that it would have inflicted real pain on certain doctors, doctors who practice in these hospital-based specialties uh, who have the ability to surprise bill. So these are doctors like emergency room physicians, anesthesiologists, radiologists, pathologists, neonatologists. Uh, The CBO thought that the effects of this policy would tend to reduce their pay on average, not everyone, and it would raise the um, salaries of some low-paid doctors in addition to uh, pulling down the pay for high ones. But on average, CBO said it thought it could be like 15 to 20 percent haircut for these docs. So, you know, if you're an emergency room doctor and you're looking at a policy that could lower your pay by 20 percent, uh, that's pretty alarming to you. You know, I mean, these are people that work really hard. They've trained for a long time. They've taken on a lot of debt. And just like all of us, they have built their lives around the expectation they're going to earn a certain income. They have mortgages. They have cars. They have kids in school, et cetera. Um, and even though I think there was really, really broad political support for the idea that patients should not be harmed in the way that surprise bills harm them, uh, I think there was just – it ended up ultimately being very, very hard to inflict this pain on this small subset of doctors. And there was enormous lobbying by both doctors and hospitals uh, who were trying to defeat this particular solution. There was a very expensive campaign of television ads and direct mail kind of targeting members of Congress who would have to vote on this. And there was also this, I mean, this sounds like so ridiculous, but there was also this sort of um, 
weird jurisdictional squabble in the House with committee chairmen who were basically fighting over who should have control over this area of health policy. That's not weird. It's very common. <laughs> but it was ancillary to the policy, it was, I would it's, say. It's always ancillary to the policy. <laughs> so I mean, this is basically middle school. <laughs> so I think that the, that uh, I sort of spent the first, uh, the last week, like, trying to find, like, who was the murderer? You know what I mean? Like, who was wielding the, the dagger that killed this thing? And, you know, I have some theories about that. But I would say that there are many murderers. Uh, but overall, I think there is a real lesson in the failure of this policy, which is that even when you have bipartisan support, bicameral support, support from the White House, support from really important and influential consumer groups, and the health insurance industry spending millions of dollars itself to advocate for the policy, and employer groups spending money to try to advocate and for the, the policy, and the public and the public polling being so overwhelmingly in favor of this, and the fact that this is not really harming all doctors or, or hospitals. It really is harming kind of a subset of doctors, a subset of hospitals, many of whom are doing something shady and unscrupulous, still couldn't happen. So Congress gave themselves um, sort of a new deadline. They only extended some health programs until May, in, because which means they'll have to do another health bill by May. Uh, and in the hopes, and they've said that they might be able to come to a deal on surprise bills and on prescription drug prices. Um, <laughs> anybody think this is Seven likely to happen? Seven months before the a major election? I mean, it's hard to picture. And after a Senate impeachment trial? <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting. You know, so I, again, have been making a lot of calls on this. And when you talk to people who are deeply involved in this process, I think there's a real divide. There's like an optimism gulf. So I think there are some people who think if we couldn't do this now, what is it that more time is going to help? Uh, that, you know, the, the fact that it failed now when it was really ready to go, when there was this must-pass vehicle for it, where there had been all this legislative effort, uh, that that really means that the chances are quite low. But then when you talk to other people who have been involved, they are much more optimistic. They say there's too much public pressure on this issue. There's too much pressure from the White House and from other stakeholders for Congress to do nothing. There is this opportunity. There's going to be a health care bill that is going to have to pass. And so that provides a vehicle for it. And, you know, I talked with uh, Greg Walden, the ranking member of the Energy and Commerce Committee earlier this week. The Republican. The Republican, yeah. And he was super optimistic. You know, he said he uh, spent last week at the White House Christmas party bending the president's ear on this. He's been talking with uh, the congressmen, uh, both the Democrats and the Republicans in both the Ways and Means Committee and the Energy and Commerce Committee, trying to get them to have an ongoing process to come up with some kind of consensus policy in the future. So we will see. I, I tend to share... Uh, everyone's skepticism that this is more likely. I also do not understand why uh, trying to bundle this with a prescription drug package that is even more controversial will somehow help it get over the finish line. Uh, but, I, you know, again, I think, you know, part of what's fun about working in the news is that you can't always predict the future and things surprise you. And so we're going to have to keep watching this one. I, I think I think I oh, think one of those two things could happen next year. But both is really straining my <laughs> um, <laughs> credulity. I think that um, 
attaching it to funding the community health centers and other things in May puts pressure on Congress to bring up some kind of policy that saves the government a lot of money, which some of these drug bills. Yeah, the drug bills save so much money that they have all these new, new Medicare benefits exactly, in them. Because, exactly. And they still save money. And the surprise billing would save some money the, as well. The current policy would save money. You know, the question is, what does the policy compromise right. look like that brings the dissenters to the table? Would it continue to save as much exactly. money? And of course, the, the bottom line is anything that saves money means that the government it is gets- taking money away from doctors or hospitals mm-hmm. or drug companies. And it's as, as we've seen from the spending package, it's way easier for Congress to come together on giving people money than on taking money away from people. It's kind of the message a, of all of these. Can I just say one more thing about this, which is I think it's important to note that Obviously, this was a budget deal that came together with both Republicans and Democrats, right? So the fact that this wasn't the fact that this was not included, I think there is some shared responsibility by both parties. But I do think that the real problem actors here were Democrats. And I think that is useful to think about as we continue to consider what is going to happen with these very ambitious Democratic proposals that are coming forward in the Democrat in the Democratic presidential primary. You know, just because one policy fails doesn't mean that others will too. But again, you know, this is one where there was so much overwhelming support and there was so much bipartisan support, and the Democrats couldn't even all agree on whether or not they were comfortable taking a little whack at some of these doctors. There are Democrats who are also beholden to the health industry. Yeah, but, you know, you think about some of the policies that are being proposed by these presidential candidates. You know, Medicare for all would not just lower the pay of certain specialists by an average of 15 to 20 percent. I mean, it would take a huge whack at basically all doctors and all hospitals and all pharmaceutical companies, and it would put insurance companies out of business. And even the public option plans, the plans that we tend to talk about here as being more moderate, would essentially create create a big government-run insurance program that would also pay all of those people less and also take business away from private insurance companies. So this is, to me, it feels like a little bit of a metaphor, a little bit of a miniature version of the kinds of fights that we can look forward to. And the fact, again, that Democrats who want to do these things, want to pair consumer protections with a little bit of pain for the medical industry, couldn't agree on this, I think does give me some pause about whether or not they would be willing to hold hands and agree on something that would be a little bit painful in favor of their broader policy objectives in the future. I just want to buy a t-shirt that says, hey, Medicare for all supporters, look at how hard it is to do just the stuff that people seem to agree on. Well, that actually, I mean, they would respond. I can tell you how they respond because I've talked to them. Um, I mean, they would respond that because the industry fights tooth and nail on these very narrow, small things, that's why you have to go big. Um, You know, there's no incentive to compromise and um, try to find a middle ground because they they won't accept that. They will fight even the most, you know, incremental policy. I will just say that having the, the benefit of having done this for 33 years, we've been through this. They couldn't. They tried to do a small bill when they did Medicare catastrophic. It got repealed. So they tried to do a big bill when they did the Clinton plan, which went down in flames. So they tried. They went back to small. That's how we got chip. Um, you know, we've we, we've done the. We can't do the big one, so we have to do the small one. We can't do the small one, so we have to do the big one. About eight times since mm-hmm. the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So we'll see where we are. In but once in a while, you get a big one through. You yeah, do. I think it's an interesting political economy question. Actually, mm-hmm. like, is it easier to do big or to do small? And I don't. Again, I don't. I don't want to be prescriptive about it. I don't think the fact that this failed means that something big will fail. I, but I think it shows that it's hard and it shows exactly what some of the challenges are and will be. And that could be instructive to people moving forward.
All right. Well, one more thing before before we go, um, because we've been talking about drug prices. The Trump administration is trying to counter the impeachment narrative by issuing new rules allowing, in limited circumstances, the import of prescription drugs from Canada. But it's unclear how much of a difference this might make in real life. Uh, One person on Twitter called it the new right to try, referring (laughs) to the law that in theory made experimental drugs easier to get, but in practice not so much. Um, Is anything likely to happen with this reimportation proposal? This is another thing that Congress has been talking about since the late 1990s. And it's, you know, in theory it's allowed, but in practice it usually isn't. I know their drug prices. Their drug prices are so much lower than ours because the government regulates them, and so the idea is that you know people in America would be able to take advantage of those lower prices, um, you know, by importing drugs. And it would be very limited. States would have to apply to participate. It it will take a really long time for this to go into effect because. We still have a, it's only they've only put out a proposal and they still have to get public comments. Then they have to issue the final rules. Then states are applying and you're going through all of that. So it could take a while. But it certainly was no accident that the plan came out right around impeachment day. Um, It's been really interesting to kind of watch both sides show how much they can focus on other priorities, especially health care in the midst of this impeachment (laughs) battle. And and this was controversial within the Trump administration. There were several officials who were very much against it and publicly said in in the past that they are against this sort of um, importation. I also think um, we should keep in mind that um, if if major drug companies want to (laughs) make sure that this doesn't happen. And if Canada wants to make sure that this doesn't happen or mainly doesn't happen, um, that will also be another major roadblock. Well, Florida is the state that seems to want to do it the most. And people have pointed out there's more people in Florida than there are in Canada. (laughs) So it's not like Canada has the supply to be able to to supply Florida with cheaper drugs. Um, I'm just I've I've sort of seen this come and go. And actually, I should mention that Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, um, had quite the rant against this on Twitter right after it came out, you know, a, a long thread um, about how this is not a good idea. And and in fact, every FDA commissioner, Democrat and Republican has said that this is not a good idea for safety reasons. It's not been this has been something that that Although, what would you expect them to do? I mean, it undermines their authority in some ways. I mean, like, you know, it just seems like the natural position of an FDA official to not want drugs that are approved by some other, you know, that are the safety of which is assured by some other body. Well, it it has to do with the the closed distribution system, and they're worried about being able to regulate where they come from. Anyway, we will will clearly see more on Mm -hmm. this. So that's as much news as we have time for this week. It is not all the news, so we'll have to catch up next year. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Kimberly, why don't you go first this week? Yes, I picked um, a great story by Emma O'Connor at BuzzFeed News since this is our last podcast of 2019 and of the decade. Um, It looks at the last, it's called The Last Decade Was Disastrous for Abortion Rights. Advocates are trying to figure out what's next. She does a really great job really tracking the last 10 years, what happened with abortion restrictions in states, how people's attitudes about abortion have changed, um, the way they they, um, represent it in film and movies, the way people get together to talk about it, um, the way they'll open about it. Um, And at the same time, the really stringent restrictions that we've seen in states. So um, it's a fascinating look and really um, there are some great maps in here too to be able to tell, you know, which which states have moved to um, loosen uh, restrictions around abortion and which ones have, have constricted them more. 
I think everybody's had had trouble doing their sort of year-end and decade-end stories because we've had so much news. So I'm glad to have stories like this to actually be able to think about. Alice. Um, I chose a story um, we were talking before about um, uh, government um, research on uh, public health. And so this is related to that. Um, It's a a Me Too story about the NIH and um, just how rampant claims of um, sexual harassment and um, inappropriate conduct are there. Um, This is from Nature magazine. U.S. Biomedical Agency has investigated hundreds of claims of inappropriate conduct this year. Um, They just did a survey of um, all of their employees and trainees, and the results are pretty grim. And they're saying, you know, we need new policies. We need people to have, you know, a, a safe and secure way to report harassment. We need better training. We need this and that. And so we'll, I'll, I'll be watching in the new year to see if any of this actually makes it into concrete policies. Margo. I wanted to recommend an article by Marshall Allen at ProPublica called What Happens When a Health Plan Has No Limits? An Acupuncturist Earns $677 a Session. And what it does is it just takes a really close look at a health plan for uh, school teachers in New Jersey that basically has no restrictions on what it will pay for out-of-network health care. Uh, this is somewhat related to our surprise bills. Yeah, it's discussion. kind of the opposite of surprise <laughs> bills. So the, this plan basically will pay, you know, they don't want, it doesn't want uh, individual school teachers to be on the hook for big bills. So what happens is that if they go to an out-of-network provider and the out-of-network provider sends a big bill, the insurance company just pays whatever that bill is. And the result has been, uh, as Marshall reports, that in particular, uh, sort of practitioners who can see patients many, many times, so physical therapists, acupuncturists, um, chiropractors, are actively recruiting these teachers to become their patients, uh, setting up kind of very luxe, uh, lovely uh, places for them to receive this care with aromatherapy and beautiful decor, and then charging really, really exorbitant above market prices, which the teacher's health plan is paying. Uh, And that this set of policies has resulted in really, really big expenditures over the uh, life of the plan that has resulted in probably higher property taxes for New Jersey taxpayers, but also has led to financial squeeze for these teachers, who many of whom are now on strike trying to get higher pay. Big reason why they can't get higher pay is because their health benefits are so expensive. And so I just think he does a really nice job of sort of untangling why we ought to care about medical providers who are getting paid really, really above market rates. It is not the case that, you know, this money just comes out of the insurance company or doesn't. It is, in fact, the case that when these providers are overpaid, that money is borne by the insurance company, which is ultimately borne by the purchaser of the insurance, in this case, the school district, and that that cost is is borne in teacher salaries and in property taxes. And I think it's a really nice metaphor for what happens throughout the system when we overpay for care. The money kind of just keeps seeping up and up into the system, and that is why we have more and more of our economy spent on health care. Yeah. Well, mine is from the New York Times, and it's called In France, Dying at Home Can Mean a Long Wait for a Doctor by Norimitsu Onishi. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I have an ulterior motive uh, in offering this story. It's a preview of the episode that we will post on January 2nd about other countries' healthcare systems and how the grass is not always as greener on the other side as one might think. In this case, about a quarter of French people with terminal illnesses die at home, which is 
a good thing by most accounts, except in France, an actual MD must certify the death and its cause before the body can be removed from that home. And in parts of the country with shortages of doctors, that can be a problem. To quote the story, a local newspaper summed up the situation in a headline, it's not good to die at home on a weekend. It just shows that every system has its good and not so good uh, features, and France is one of them. So that is our show for the week and our podcast for the year. Special thanks to Mary Agnes Carey, who filled in for me last week while I was competing at the AKC National Championship Dog Show. And since this is our last podcast for the year, I want to stop and say thanks to some of the folks behind the scenes who make the show possible every week. Francis Ying, Lydia Zara, Tarina Lofton, Lynn Shalcross, Lexi Verdon, and Tanya English. It truly takes a village. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Alice Olstein. At Leonard KL. We will be back in your feed January 2nd. In the meantime, have a great holiday season and be healthy. <laughs>